Well, it's great to be here, uh, and it's great to be here uh, on Reformation Sunday. You know, when the Reformation happened, one of the moves of that renewal movement was to clear out a bunch of things that tradition had sort of piled on to the biblical gospel. Um, some of the things that were, you know, really in error, um, um, indulgences, um, prayers uh, to the saints, uh, purgatory, just all this sort of stuff that was not biblical, and there was a kind of a cleaning out move. A lot of people watching the Reformation from a distance across Europe thought, well, next they'll get rid of the Trinity because that's a traditional thing that we'll throw out. And all the reformers were horrified at that thought, like, no, that is not part of the clutter that has built up over the centuries. That is a core Christian doctrine. It's in the Bible. It's right there. It's closely linked to the gospel of salvation. So sola scriptura, sola gratia, by grace alone, you know, um, uh, scripture alone as our criterion of truth and what counts. The Reformation turned out to be a great movement of reinvestment in the doctrine of the Trinity as a gospel truth um, and as a biblical thing. So in keeping with that spirit, um, I want to preach this morning from a passage of scripture and uh, really dwell on how the triune God is made known in that one passage. So I'll be reading from Ephesians, uh, the first chapter, Uh, Really, the first half of the first chapter, as I'll explain a little bit later, is one huge sentence. So we're going to start in Ephesians 1 and read verses 3 through 14. I'll read them aloud, and let me just tell you in advance, this is the best part of the sermon, this part where I read. Not that I'm going to read it that well, but like it's it's really an amazing passage stuffed with lots of things. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us In the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There you go. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Now, I need to apologize that as I read that passage, I just didn't do it justice. I'm tempted to read it again and try harder to communicate more of the fullness of all that's in these verses, but I know that I would only fail again if I read it again. Because what's here in Ephesians 1 is better than any expression I can put into the reading of it and far better than anything I can say about it. What that means for our time together this morning is that the best part of the sermon is already over. So I'm not saying you should nod off at this point, but it really is all downhill from here. That was was the good stuff. 
Because this passage in Ephesians is exalted. It is one of the highest mountain peaks in the word of God. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul is arrested by the recognition that the triune God has given a blessing. And the theme of blessing just overwhelms him. It so overwhelms him that he writes an overwhelming sentence about it. And I I did say sentence because even though in modern English translations, these 12 verses are broken up into three or four, or in the version I just read, five sentences. In Greek, the language Paul wrote in, it is all one sentence, one long sentence with over 200 words in it that starts with blessed be God and ends with to the praise of his glory and really just never stops on the way from one to the other. Um, Everywhere that you see a, a start over in a good English translation where it says period, in him, what Paul actually wrote was comma, basically, in whom. So he used that like relative pronoun to point back to like, I said Jesus, in whom, etc., etc. It just makes for an incredibly long sentence. So uh, reasonable English Bible translators have mercy on us and put a period there and say, take a breath, in him, and you have to remember the person mentioned at the end of the previous sentence. But for Paul, it was all just comma, in whom, in whom, in whom, in that one, and on it goes. It's hard to say in this sentence whether we should say that it travels a tremendous distance and covers everything along the way, or whether we should say it doesn't really travel, it never really leaves the one region of the blessing and praise of glory of God. It's hard to say about this sentence whether it runs from heaven down to earth and back again, or whether it just circles around and around in one place in the heavenly places, as it says in 1.3. Without ever seeming frantic or rushed, this amazing sentence drives relentlessly on with tremendous energy. Without ever losing its balance, it tumbles forward in phrase after phrase after phrase. And without, or forever, without ever forgetting itself, it takes unexpected and surprising detours. It doesn't contradict itself, but it surprises us. It doubles back on itself. It triples back on itself. Without ever blinking or looking away, this sentence examines its subject matter from every angle. What a sentence. The most remarkable sentence in the Bible? I don't know if I'm licensed to announce which sentence that is. Possibly so, though. There are really only a few competitors with Ephesians 1 for best sentence in the Bible. Um, Maybe Romans 8, maybe Hebrews 1. You know, there's some standout verses. You think, no slam on any other passage of Scripture. It's all the inspired and errant word of God. But there are some mountain peaks that stick out above the others and say, that has so much in it, you can see the whole world from there. It's an elite company of best sentences in Scripture. The whole Bible is the Word of God. Um, You could say that the entirety of sacred Scripture is a mountain range that rises straight up and towers above the plane of merely human possibilities. But Ephesians is like an especially high mountain peak that stands out even in the mountain range. One commentator uh, decades ago called this sentence that I just read, quote, the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever met in the Greek language. Now, I don't think monstrous is quite the right tone of voice for something that is good and holy. But you have to admit that the sentence is wild. It's not a tame sentence. It's not domesticated. It's an unmanageable sentence about an uncontainable God's indescribable blessing. The wildness of the blessing, I keep emphasizing because it's an important aspect of it. And if this sentence about God's blessing doesn't make you a little bit dizzy, then you're probably not reading it right. It's calculated to induce in the reader a kind of sober dizziness. 
So just look at the nouns. Let me just like take one angle at this. Look at the nouns in this sentence. Blessing, adoption, purpose, praise, grace, the beloved used as a noun, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, insight, a plan, uh, an inheritance, truth, gospel, salvation, guarantee, glory. That's just the nouns. Like we're not even doing anything with them. That's just a list of words that Paul uses in the course of this sentence. It's, it's hard to think of what he left out among all the blessings of God. But now like cover the nouns and just look at the verbs. Blessed, chose, predestined, lavished, making known, to unite, to hope, to seal, acquire. Again, it's, uh, you can think of a few verbs for what God has done for us in our salvation that don't explicitly appear here, but there aren't many left out. Like All those nouns would be great. All those verbs would be enough. You put them together, you've got this amazing thing happening. Now look at the prepositions. In, no, I'm not going to do that. I was just testing to see if you were with me there. Uh, by themselves, in, with, and before, and all that doesn't make much of a great story. But in context, of course, as the glue that holds this all together and sequences how these nouns and verbs are working together, the prepositions are amazing, especially the little prepositional phrase, according to. Right? When it says that God has blessed us according to his glory, um, I think it's Ari Tori who said, if you had a billionaire friend, would you rather him share with you from his wealth or according to his wealth? And Tori said, like, from his wealth could be like 10 bucks. According to his wealth would be the kind of gift proportionate to someone with that amount of value, right? And so for Paul to say that God has done these things according to his great riches of glory really raises the scale of it. And that's just one of the little prepositional phrases. This sentence basically proposes more ideas and points in more directions than anyone could reasonably be expected to take in. There's an abundance here bordering on excessiveness. It's one of the passages of the Bible that has to be memorized, really, in order to be taken in. So that in this sentence, once you've got it stored inside of you and hidden in your heart, God can speak to your heart and to your mind. So if you have a Bible memory regime or or a program of any kind, there are a lot of reasons to memorize Scripture. There are a lot of things you want immediately on file and and in your mind. There are some really uh, rich and deep passages of Scripture that you want to memorize and internalize specifically because you've got to have them inside of you for constant consultation if you're even going to sort of penetrate into understanding what they're saying. This is one of those passages. Set your heart to study the word of God, this word of God. Learn it, let it live within you, and do its work. No word of God ever returns to God empty or void without accomplishing what he sent it for. And this sentence from God was spoken in order to do something in particular that I'm pointing out here, to expand our sense of what salvation is. That's, that's what this sentence is, is, is intending to do inside of your mind and spirit, to expand your sense of what salvation is. It was sent to shake us out of thinking that we've got this whole thing figured out. It was sent forth to disorient us. So seriously, what real good is a sentence that's this far over our heads? You ever talk to someone in their field of work and you ask them what they do and they tell you and then you ask the follow-up question and you realize it's way above your pay grade and you no longer know what they were talking about, right? Um, And you just kind of want to say, like, dial that back. 
a lot and explain to me as if I know nothing, because in fact, I know nothing. Um, A sentence that's too far above our heads is totally unattainable. We just can't get into it. But Paul knows and God knows that we need to be summoned out of ourselves sometimes, especially when we're talking about God and the gospel, summoned out of ourselves in order to praise God properly. And this word from God is a solid dose of disorientation to get us out of ourselves so we can praise God uh, in a a way proportionate to who he is and what he's done. All of us just naturally think about things from our own perspective, from our own point of view, starting from a center in ourselves and then considering how things look to us from where we are. It can't be avoided. We all have to start where we are. It's not even sinful. It's it's not the bad kind of self-centeredness. It's just you have a perspective from where you're sitting. But our little created minds come to encounter the infinite God, and we run the risk of adding God to the catalog of items that we're interested in studying or acquiring or reaping benefits from. So especially when the issue is the blessing of salvation, the danger is great that the finite mind will treat God and all his blessings as sort of enhancements to be added to our lives, right? to be brought into this center. The way to escape this habitual tendency of ours is to be drawn out of ourselves into the bewilderingly vast and complex gospel of God. The excessiveness of Paul's sentence here has a purpose. It wants to disorient our existing categories in order to reorient us by drawing us into the divine orientation. This is if I were going to preach on one uh, uh, word or or phrase from this to make this point, I would point you to that little phrase in 1-3, in the heavenly places. Right? Ephesians begins in the heavenly places and talks to us from there. Romans, if you're going through Romans right now, Romans climbs, right? Romans starts with the human problem and gradually, uh, argument by argument, climbs its way up to sort of the high point of Romans 8. The strategy of Ephesians is to begin at the top and keep you in the realm of God's point of view and tell you all things about the gospel and your life from that point of view. We need to start our thinking from a center in God and not in ourselves. And the question is, can we do that? Is it something that we're capable of? Um, can we, do we have it in ourselves to begin our thinking from God's perspective, from a God's eye view? Well, we don't. It will take a miracle for us to grasp this ability to see ourselves from God's point of view. And that's why, in Ephesians, Paul stops and prays just a little bit later that a miracle would happen in our minds. In Ephesians 1.17, he prays, this is right after our passage, we stopped at 14. In 1.17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know these things he's telling us about. And then in, down in chapter 3, verse 19, he stops again to pray. This is the only letter of Paul where he stops himself twice to pray. And what he prays for is that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that can happen because God, as he says in 3, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So we come to this sentence asking for the miracle of understanding to take place among us by the power of God, among us and within us. Even this morning, by the power of God, may that be so. May the eyes of our hearts be opened so that we can understand properly what God has done. And so, lost in wonder, love, and praise, we make our way into this sentence and try to get our bearings within the great blessing of God. Because this complex and bewildering sentence doesn't repel us. I hope it's not so complicated that it sort of runs you off. 
We ought to be able to hear it inviting us in, asking us to dwell in its spiritual power and let ourselves experience its progress, its sort of ups and downs, its repetitions, its elaborations, and the fullness of the blessing. So there on the pages of our Bible is a sentence, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It's infinitely better than anything I can possibly say about it, but as you can tell, I'm going to keep trying to say things about it. So to do my best to make a sermon out of it, there are three things that I want to say about what God has said here through Paul and Ephesians. Three things, and actually, it's three sets of three things, so I'm kind of cheating. It's a total of nine, really, but but under three headings. We'll be brief, and we'll consider them as sets or as triads. The last triad we're going to look at, spoiler alert, is the triad of divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. The second to the last is going to be the triad of time, past, present, and future. You might have picked that up as it moves through the sentence. But we'll start with the triad of blessing right there in verse 3. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Paul takes this word bless and rings three changes on it. Blessed be God who has blessed us with a blessing. It's the exact same word in Greek and in English, bless, but it runs in two directions. We should bless God, think about this going upward, because he is the God who has blessed us. Think about that blessing going downward. We are joined to God by this same verb to bless. We bless God and God blesses us. Both things happen here. But as soon as you say it in a kind of a cozy way like that, you're taken aback because we don't bless God the way God blesses us, right? Not at all. Same word, different concept. Think first about the initiative, like who starts it. Were we blessed at all before God blessed us? No, he blessed us, and then we blessed him back by calling him blessed. Just as scripture says that we love because he first loved us, that's actually right there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, So in this case, we bless because he first blessed us. The phrase, bless God who has blessed us, means that the order of operations runs, step one, God blesses us, then step two, we bless God back, responding to his prior work of blessing. So we weren't blessed before God took the initiative to bless us, but was God blessed before we blessed him back? Absolutely. When was God blessed, or to make it sound fancy, blessed? He was always already blessed. God was never not blessed. He didn't wait for us to bless him in order to become the one who is blessed. This is kind of mind-blowing, but God is blessed in himself. Blessedness in the Bible is actually a divine attribute. In Mark 14, uh, we see that the word blessed is a title for God. Are you the son? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And then 1 Timothy 6.15 calls God the blessed and only sovereign. The king of kings and lord of lords who alone possesses immortality. And elsewhere, Paul says he's bringing the message of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. In fact, blessedness is one of the most important of the divine attributes because it sums up all the other divine attributes. Um, If you take all that it means to be God, like his goodness and his mercy and his truth and his faithfulness and beauty, steadfastness and patience and wisdom, all of those, and you add in all those omni-attributes, you know, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, all the attributes, every perfection of God, everything we can say about him and praise of him. If you bundle them all up and put them all together and ask what we should call them when we picture them as shining forth from God, like in their primal unity, God has all of those divine perfections and they shine forth from him, and we would say, the one word for that is glory. Like the glory of God is the shining forth of all his attributes as one. 
But if you were to gather them all up uh, and ask, what is it like to have those? Like, not what is it like to shine, for them to shine forth, but what is it like for God to have all the divine perfections all in one? And the biblical answer is that he's blessed, uh, which is a really kind of a fancy or exalted word for happy. It might sound like too little if I were to say, you know, the good news is God is happy. And that is good news, and it kind of hits us where we live with like, yeah, God's not sad or morose or bitter or any of those things. God has happiness. But the word happiness is kind of dragged down by common usage. So the biblical word that we get is blessed. God eternally has and is this divine blessedness. It's easier to see this and to say it if we bring in, in advance, the biblical idea of the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not incomplete or lonely or needy. They're not sitting around heaven wishing they had a fourth so they could play cards or something, or, the, or you know, wishing that the pitter-patter of little feet would liven up the place and add some uh, excitement to the drafty old mansions of heaven. That's not what's going on in heaven. No, God in three persons, the blessed Trinity, is fully blessed. Uh, has everything he needs within the divine life. When God brings us into fellowship, where he is already without us fulfilled in his own fellowship, when he brings us into fellowship, it's for our salvation, not his enrichment. Um, It's good news for us, not for him. Out of his own infinite, boundless blessedness, God blesses us, and then the sentence starts, because we bless him back. Blessed be God, who is all this and does all this. The blessedness of God is the foundation of our salvation, and it's the fountain of all blessings toward us. In fact, the blessedness of God is the secret of this big sentence, in which we see that fountain opened up and pouring forth one great blessing after another. Blessed be the blessed God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then there follows this huge list that we've uh, surveyed. What we've heard here is the two terms, blessed be God who blessed us. But the third occurrence of the word is that he's blessed us with a blessing, which is just how Ephesians talks. If you spend some time in, in Ephesians, it's he loved us with love, graced us with grace, we know with knowledge, he blessed us with a blessing. In Ephesians, we're constantly getting verbed with a noun, you know, um, because I think Ephesians is trying to focus our attention on the uniqueness of this thing that God has done. We are blessed with a blessing. We'll have to do a lot. Where, uh, so th- that's my first point. Uh, the first triad that I want to show you in this sentence is right there at the beginning, but it underlies the entire thing. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We're going to move a lot faster with the next two triads because um, if, if you do it right, everything's right there in that opening move. And again, that's the Ephesian strategy is to start from the top and then unpack it all. Remember, I already warned you we wouldn't do the sentence justice, and it was worth paying close attention to the blessedness of God because it's something we're in danger of neglecting. It's easy to forget that God is the blessed God. But let's turn at least to some of the everything else that's here. The second of the three things I want to say about this sentence, past, present, future, this triad, structures the great sentence. The triad of time, what has happened, what is now the case, and what will come to pass. This sentence begins in the eternal life of the timeless God, but then it has a chronological structure. It's a story with a beginning, middle, and end. The past runs from around verse 4 to around verse 6. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption. If I wanted to tell you the story of my salvation, I could tell you about that time I got saved, you know, back in the 80s, I guess it was. It would be my testimony, and it'd be a fine one. You know, this is my story, this is my song, I'm sticking to it. Uh, There's a moment in my biography you can look back to 
and I can gratefully say, this is when I found Jesus or when he found me, and this is the past event in my biography, which I look to as the start of my life as a disciple of Christ. But Ephesians 1 fails to mention my conversion in Kentucky in the 1980s. It starts further back than my testimony. It doesn't start with me being born again or becoming adopted as a child of God. It starts with God predestining me to be adopted. You can't get much further back than predestined in terms of history. That really reaches all the way back to start your story before your story starts with the thing into which you were later brought. Paul says this wild thing here, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's a New Testament sentence. You're going to look hard in the Old Testament to find a statement about what happens before the foundation of the world. Old Testament's going to tell you about the foundation of the world. Something happens in Christ and in the gospel that leads Paul to say, yeah, but before that, it's, it's literally older than dirt, right? Like, it's, it's, it's all the way back. That's, that's the past. But then at verse 7, it moves into the present with the inconspicuous little verb, have. In Christ, we have redemption. We've got it. It's a present possession. Um, we own it. We have it in our possession now. It's the forgiveness of sins, which is not something we just look back to and remember that, you know, once upon a time when our sins were forgiven, we now have portable with us, carried around in the gospel with us, the forgiveness of sins. And then around verse 11, Paul moves to future expectation. We are sealed in promise with a view to a future redemption. The futurity of that fulfillment of this blessing is why you don't enjoy it all now. You read Ephesians 1 and think, this does not quite match the level of my personal experience. This is better than the Christian life I'm living. Well, yes, parts of it are going to stick out because parts of it are in the future. There's a fulfillment still to come. We do have forgiveness of sins. That's something we have with confidence. We look forward to the full inheritance of this blessing. Well, that's the past, present, future structure of this great sentence. And in telling the story of what the blessed God has done, is doing, and will do for our salvation, Paul has necessarily fallen into another threefold cadence. We got blessed be God who blesses us with a blessing. We got past, present, and future. But we've also got this last and greatest triad, which is the Trinity. The third set of three things I want to say about this sentence is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you notice that the sentence makes its way from the Father who chose us through the beloved Son in whom we have redemption to the promised Spirit in whom we are sealed? It can be hard to spot because the word Father doesn't occur. It says God instead, but it means Father. The word Son doesn't occur. It calls him instead the Beloved. And the Holy Spirit's the only one who actually gets name-checked in this sentence. But I'm not... I'm not smuggling in. You don't need my personal Fred Sanders study Bible to identify the Father in the first part of that verse, the Son in the middle, and the Spirit at the end. Um, It all starts with the Father, the one who Jesus eagerly desires for us to come to know. And it all works its way out through the Son. And even though the word Son doesn't occur in this passage referring to Christ, the Beloved, of course, is what the voice of the Father called Christ at his baptism. This is my Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um... And also, the, the phrase in Christ, did you notice that it occurs something like 13 times in 12 verses? Just in Christ, in him, in whom, in the Lord, uh, in the beloved. Over and over, very Christ-centered. And then it all reaches its fulfillment in the Holy Spirit, the business end of God's blessing. The one who's dwelling in us makes Jesus from the Father a present reality and opens our eyes to the reality of the Father and the Son. These are things that God does, and he does them threefoldly. But here's the reason. 
not just to give us something, like here's a blessing I give you, but to give us himself. Like the reason this blessing we get is structured, Father, Son, and Spirit, is because it's the blessing of the self-gift, the giving of God himself to us for our salvation. That's, that's the biggest thought you can have about this passage. God gives himself in his gifts. In all that he gives, he gives God. God's plan is not just about giving us some stuff, not even spiritual stuff. The good news of the gospel is that God gave us himself. Or to put it in Trinitarian terms, the Father so loved us that he gave his Son. The Father sent his Son in the fullness of time and then sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He gave himself to us to be our salvation. It's a much more personal understanding of what salvation is. And by personal, notice I don't mean like personal to me. I mean personal to him, that God gives us himself as our salvation. This is why God puts his name on us when he blesses us. From the Levitical blessing back in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, The Lord make his face shine upon you. All the way to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God is in the business of saving by self-giving, by identifying himself with his people, by putting his name on them in exactly this threefold way that corresponds to his eternal threefold life. By taking them up and binding unto them the strong name of the Trinity. This is why this blessing is the Trinitarian blessing. It doesn't bring it all together in one tidy little verse. You know, I like it when I believe a doctrine because it's biblical. I love for it to fit in one verse, you know. I'd love to memorize one little verse and say, that's why I believe in the Trinity. There are some verses like that. We could do Matthew 28, 20, etc. Um, but this is a long, long sentence where you have to open your mind, stay with the plot, let a gigantic thought into your mind and say, yeah, the Trinity's in there. And if someone says, where? You have to kind of wave your hands around and go, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, you know? We'll find some little bite-sized portable Trinity verses as well, but this one is a huge unit of thought in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit save us by being Father, Son, and Spirit to us. Adoption as sons, sealing with the Spirit, election by the Father, All of that is what we're brought into. Can you see God putting his name on his people here in this passage? And in the name, and the name of God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Blessed be God who has blessed us with this blessing of himself for us and our salvation. Now, the completed doctrine of the Trinity is the point that God was driving at all along in the Bible. That's why when the early church got together to summarize the meaning of what the Bible basically says in a way that would fit on, say, an index card, Uh, or could be recited from memory, trying to capture the essential plot line, they came up with something like the Apostles' Creed, you know, later on the Nicene Creed, but especially the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ his Son and in the Holy Spirit. It's the short, portable summary of the Bible. Like, oh, based on everything Scripture says, Genesis to Revelation, what do you believe about God? And the Apostles' Creed says, I believe the following three things. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Could you hear the little dot, dot, dots in between as I left out the content that goes under what we believe about the Son and what we believe about the Spirit? But the big picture is, this is our faith. This is what we believe. Now, that's the three sets of three things, but I want to go one step further. I'm going to give you a bonus three things, uh, a freebie, freebie, no, no extra charge here. There's another thing that is repeated three times, and you may have already noticed it when I was reading it. The praise of his glory. 
The praise of his glory is a little phrase that occurs in verses 6, 12, and 14. Verse 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And verse 14. The Spirit is given with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This sentence is all about what God has done for us. He's blessed us in Christ in this astonishing way. But it doesn't follow that all his blessing has been poured out for our glory or for the praise of our glory. On the contrary, it all redounds to the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of God alone. Sole Deo Gloria, as the Reformation slogan puts it, to God's glory alone. And this entire mind-blowing sentence about salvation three times comes back and reminds us to whom the glory for this great blessing goes, to the, to the praise of his glory. Paul returns to tag this base three times. Three times he draws back to remind us specifically the goal and purpose of all this blessing. It should amount to our praise of his glory. Psalm 115 says, Not unto us, Lord, not to us, but to thy name be the glory. And never more so than in the New Testament's fulfillment of salvation in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So at the beginning of the sermon, I promised that I would not be able to do justice to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I hope that I have kept my promise to you and have not done justice to it. But you've got it there in your hands. The blessed Trinity, Trinity has blessed believers with a blessing. In a plan of salvation that stretches from the past, through the present, and into the future. In order to establish intimate fellowship between us and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. I had to leave a lot out in that little miniature summary. But I hope that in our time together, this has served as an introduction to and an invitation to the great blessing of the Trinity. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for making known to us the mystery of your will. Thank you for the miracle of salvation that puts into effect your will so that it can be known by us. Lord, we confess that these things are too great for us, that they are high and lofty things into which we would only peek because you have condescended to reveal them to us and invite us to them. These are things we might flatter ourselves with to our own harm if we didn't have the solid confidence that these are for our good and that you would not have made them known to us if they weren't for our good. Just as Paul prayed for the readers of Ephesians that you, the Father of glory, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing you, Lord, I pray that you would move on all of us today to bring about the same miracle of spiritual understanding. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see great things in your word. Lord, where this exposition of your great and holy sentence of blessing has opened up a new angle of understanding or indicated that a trailhead that begins a journey into the spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, I pray that you would strengthen us all with strength to go down that road, grace us with grace to grow in nearness to you, and bless us with the blessing of knowing and trusting your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.